Our first scripture lesson this morning is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Let us listen together for God's word for you and for me this morning. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not destroy or hurt on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Amen. With our Isaiah text and the text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, uh, continue to propel us in a series on servant leadership. An idea born out of our long-range strategic plan, and over the last several weeks, we have one more week to go after this one, but over the last several weeks, we've been talking about uh, the leadership life of Jesus and the, the ways he demonstrated that leadership life in discrete ways. We, we've talked about it in terms of competencies, things that we too can develop so that we might lead like Jesus. And today we're talking about conceptualization and foresight. In other words, we're talking about vision and intuition as skills that we are called to develop and nurture so that we too can lead like Jesus. Luke's gospel, the 14th chapter. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to Jesus, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of land, and I must go out and see it. 
please accept my regrets. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot attend. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. A few women from our congregation, including my wife Katie, attended a day-long retreat at St. Philip's right up the street on Peachtree uh, last weekend. The event featured Becca Stevens, a celebrated author, speaker, and social entrepreneur. Uh, Becca founded something called Magdalene House in 1997, and soon after she founded a company called Thistle Farms. Both of them are located in Nashville, Tennessee. Magdalene House is a residence for women who have experienced trafficking, violence, or addiction. They are able to stay at the home for two years, rent-free, while receiving education, therapy, and medical care. While they're there, they also go to work, and they work in the company that Becca started, this company called Thistle Farms that makes bath and beauty and household products. Today, some 20 years after founding it, Thistle Farms employs 1,800 women worldwide. Now, when Becca speaks somewhere, and she speaks a lot, uh, she always takes one or two women from Magdalene House with her. And for many of these women, it would be the first time that they have ever left the state of Tennessee, let alone ever traveled by airplane. Becca told a story at this retreat last week about a recent experience she had at one of these speaking engagements. She had been invited to Omaha, Nebraska. Thistle Farms has, a, has part of its organization in Omaha, but, but Becca was really not up for this trip to Omaha, Nebraska, in the middle of nowhere. No offense to anybody from Omaha. She thought, I'm going to bring Gina from Magdalene House with me for her very first trip out of the state, for her very first airplane ride, and we're going to Omaha, Nebraska. Becca was feeling uninspired. She was feeling apathetic toward the trip. And upon their arrival, Becca described how everything in her vision, that everything seemed gray, even though there were great things happening through Thistle Farms in Omaha, Nebraska, everything just seemed uninspiring. Everything seemed to be gray. She just wanted to finish the engagement. She wanted to get back home. She wanted to get in bed and watch reruns of Law and Order all night long. 
So after the event, Becca and Gina went to the airport. They boarded the plane for home. It was nighttime. They took off, and the plane reached its cruising altitude. And because Gina had never flown before, except that first leg of the trip, of course, because she had never flown before, she didn't quite know the etiquette one should honor while they are flying, particularly when it comes to seat space. So from the middle seat, Gina leaned over into Becca's space as Becca sat by the window. She wanted to look out the window. She wanted to see what was outside of the plane. And, and Becca became a little bit agitated by this faux pas. And then Gina leaned in even more to the point that her head was basically leaning on Becca's inside shoulder closest to the window. And just as Becca was going to give Gina a little lesson on minding her seat space while she flew on an airplane, Gina, gazing out the window with childlike wonder and joy, said, Becca, I didn't know there was anything above the clouds. I didn't know there was anything above the clouds. Becca looked out the window and in plain view was a supermoon lighting the night sky and reflecting off the clouds with radiant purples and blues. Becca hadn't seen it until Gina saw it. And until Gina shared that vision, until she shared what Becca could not see with her own eyes, Becca would remain imprisoned by her self-pity, her apathy, and her lack of inspiration. Friends, isn't that how it often goes? That we have to watch someone love something before we learn to love it ourselves? Isn't that how it often goes, that, that we have to watch someone be inspired by something before we ourselves are inspired by it? Or perhaps, perhaps we have to see someone see something for the first time. Perhaps we have to see someone see something for the first time, something that we ourselves may have seen a thousand times. We may have to see someone see something for the first time in order for us to see the true value and worth of the thing that they are looking at. On a day like today, there are some questions in front of us. What have you seen of late? that has left you uninspired? What have you seen that seems only gray to you? What's in your sight line these days that has produced apathy or indifference? What do you see? What do you see that has left you paralyzed, that has left you wondering, what am I going to do next? Perhaps it's a deep grief. Perhaps it is a litany of, of violence, vitriol, and, and vulgarity that we see on our news feeds each and every day. Perhaps it's a dire change in our circumstances that has turned everything upside down and inside out. Perhaps you haven't been able to catch your breath. Perhaps you haven't been able to catch a break. 
Perhaps it's a habit that is suffocating you. Perhaps it is the pervasive feeling of spiritual or moral bankruptcy in the soul of our nation. Or perhaps it's the feeling of spiritual or moral bankruptcy in your own being. In moments like these, what we need is a new vision. We need a new vision. And because we need a new vision, we need leaders like Gina was for Becca Stevens. We need leaders who can point us to a vision that inspires us, a vision that revives our soul, a vision that changes how we receive each and every day God gives us. We need leaders who can conceptualize a future that is distinct from the past. We need leaders who have foresight, who possess an intuition convinced that another world is possible. And if you've been around the last couple of weeks, you know we've been saying this throughout the series, that I believe we are the leaders we've been praying for. That we are the leaders we've been hoping for. That we are the people who have both the call and the gifts to turn ourselves and to invite others to turn to a vision that by God's grace allows us to enter and receive God's merciful and God's just reign on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that the prophet Isaiah was that kind of a leader. He's writing in the 8th century BCE. The prophet is the bearer of God's word to the people of God, is experiencing a great time of peril. This prophet, this leader, sets forth a vision of what God wants to do in front of their eyes. But, but all that they've seen around them at this time, Isaiah is writing to a people that all they can see is gray. All they can see is self-pity. All they can, can see is, is that which is uninspiring because what has happened in their national life has been debilitating. The Assyrian Empire has advanced to in an attempt to dominate the entire region, they moved west from present-day northern Iraq. They first conquered Aram, which is in modern-day Syria, and then they went on to Israel, the name of the northern kingdom for the people of God. And after they conquered the northern kingdom, they moved further south, conquering the southern kingdom called Judah, making it a puppet state. And this is why, in, in the midst of this particular vision, why the imagery used in Isaiah 11 is so poignant as it relates to the theme of this stump of Jesse. Now, for those of us who've been in church for a while, we know that the, that, that the stump of Jesse refers to Jesse's family. It's, it's Jesse's line from which King David came from. Uh, this line was to be established in an uninterrupted way that God would establish this leadership line without pause or interruption. And yet, what the people see in their vision, this gray, uninspiring self-pity of a vision, what they see is that God's promises have been interrupted. The Assyrians had cut it down. There was nothing left but a stump. I can't help but to think in my own life, in my own mind rather, as we think about this image of a tree being cut down, I can't help but to think 
of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Maybe you're thinking about them this morning too. As they were making their morning prayers to God, prayers that included, let's not miss this, prayers that included the affirmation of God's provision and God's protection for them. A man walked into that sacred space, his lips dripping with anti-Semitism and hate, and he cut those trees down. And it's here, I think, we're forced to face one of the most challenging questions of our faith. How can God's promises be interrupted? How can God's promises be interrupted? How can the Davidic line of kings be cut down? How can worshipers convince that they are in the unremitting care and mercy of God? How can they be cut down? Here's what I believe. I believe God promises these things. I believe God promises these things. God brings this vision. And I believe God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seeks to to work this vision into reality in the world. But I also believe that human beings in our pervasive depravity, time and time again, seek to interrupt and derail God's promises. How do we do it? We do it in our idolatry, principally. We do it in our worship of other things. We do it in our idolatry of money. We do it in our idolatry of weapons. We do it in our idolatry of power. We do it in our idolatry of status. We do it in our idolatry of self-interest, of self-promotion, of self-pity. We do it in such a way that cuts down trees, that cuts them dead. Trees that God has planted, trees that God has nurtured. You know, when I read a scripture text, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a preacher, I just, I always want to see myself in good light. I put myself in the shoes of Isaiah as the one heralding in this vision, but as I look in my own life, And I look at the life of the world and the pervasive depravity we see therein. We fit more into the shoes of the Assyrians than we do the prophet Isaiah. Because we as people cut trees down, level them to stumps. But the vision of Isaiah says that God can take a stump and redeem it. God can take our actions in cutting things down, cutting things dead, and raise something new. Isaiah prophesies that a shoot will spring from the house of Jesse, that a shoot will spring up from this stump that has been cut down. Now, the Hebrew word for shoot is the same word for rod or scepter. It's that thing which a leader, which a king, which a ruler would hold And this rod and the scepter imagery makes it clear that God will raise up a leader, that God is going to raise up a leader. God will raise up a leader in the line of King David who will work for the vision of God's peaceable kingdom. And Christians have long confessed, friends, this is our story. We have long confessed that this prophecy is about Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we have said over the years For is he not the one whom the Spirit of God has come to rest? 
Did he not lead with wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and in the knowledge of the fear of the Lord? Did he not judge the poor with righteousness and make equity his guide for the meek of the earth? Did he not come to strike down the wickedness of the world by bearing our pervasive depravity and sin on a cross? And did he not wear righteousness and faithfulness like a belt around his waist? Surely the leader Isaiah prophesies was and is Jesus the Christ. And surely what Isaiah is describing is a vision of what Jesus came to do for you and for me and for the life of the world. The work of reconciliation, the work of healing enmity and strife, and the inclusion of every tribe and every nation in the household of God. But I want to be crystal clear on this one point. If you don't remember anything else, remember this one thing. The conceptualization and the vision and the intuition of the kingdom of God, a vision that receives a future that's distinct from the past, a vision that lets us know that another world is possible. Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God was not some far-off, pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die reality. Remember that today. This is not something that we rally around today, and we're preparing our souls to receive that when we die. You go back to Jesus and his parable in Luke 14. There's a lot to unpack here. I want to just focus on one single solitary line. When Jesus says through the voice of the master, come for everything is ready now, now. So many Christians live in this reality that we're just preparing our souls to meet our death when the gospel at its core is about preparing our souls to live life now, to enter and receive the kingdom of God now to stop making excuses now, like the characters in the parable made excuses. Now is the time. One of the excuses that I think lives below the surface, it's one that we don't often articulate. I know it's one that I carry. It goes something like this. This is one of the excuses that I would use for pushing off the kingdom to another day. I'd say something like this. This is Jesus' work. It's a theologically correct statement. This is Jesus' work. But I go on and say, it's not my work. It's not my responsibility. Because, because he is the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. He is the shoot. Not me. It's not my work. It's, it's, it's his work. Choir member last week upon leaving said to me, you know, Tony, on, on Sunday, on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, it's Armistice Day. It's Armistice Day. It's the day that we mark the 100th anniversary of the end of the Great War, the war that was supposed to end all wars. And I was thinking over the weekend about a Presbyterian minister, Reverend First Lieutenant Thomas McNeil Bulla who served as an army chaplain during the Great War. He was born to immigrant parents in rural North Carolina in 1881. I saw a lot of graduates from the university he attended. He went to Davidson College, a good Presbyterian school. And then he attended Union Seminary in Richmond. On October 9th, 1918, Bulla's regiment joined the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. It was one of the deadliest battles of the war. And less than a month before the armistice, Reverend Bulla's unit went on the offensive. And, and during that battle, Reverend Bulla did something that wasn't part of his job description as chaplain. 
He did something that was not required of him. He actually did something that was counter to the orders that he had received, that he would enter into no man's land, that space, that, that space where, where people or soldiers were lying wounded and, and dying and dead. He would enter into that space and he would pull one soldier at a time to safety, one by one by one. He was eventually struck by enemy gunfire and he died two days later. And I want to use this as an illustration for our faith and life together. We could say that the work of the kingdom, the work of the kingdom seems too dangerous. For some of us, it seems too political. For some of us, it seems like it's meddling away from preparing us for the sweet by and by. It's asking, and, and instead is asking us to be something or do something right now to receive the kingdom of God. We might say, you know what, this is not my job. This is not my work to do. This is Jesus' work to do. It's contrary to the orders of a greedy and godless world that many of us have bought into, orders that we have received from this secular age. But I don't want us to forget the words from Acts 17. From one ancestor, it says, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and God allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God Though indeed God is not far from each one of us. In God we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. You catch that last line. We are God's offspring. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you and I have been engrafted into the family of God. We are part now of the Davidic line. Here it is. Here's the scandal of the message today. You and I, we are the shoots that spring forth from the stump of Jesse. We are those who are being raised up, I think, to have a concept and an intuition for the peaceable kingdom described by Isaiah and by Jesus that was meant to be received now in our homes, in our city, our nation, and throughout the world. Let me close with this very brief story. Two Fridays ago, I attended a Shabbat service at the temple. This was the first Shabbat following the Tree of Life a tragedy in Pittsburgh. As my friend and senior rabbi Peter Berg spoke about how this attack was an attack on all Jews and how we must possess a vision contrary to the religious discrimination and religious violence we see in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and anti-Christian and all forms of this kind of devilish work, I could sense in that sanctuary that we were entering and receiving the kingdom of God right there on Peachtree Street. For in that sanctuary of a thousand people, a thousand people had gathered for this service. For in that sanctuary, there were Jews, Christians, Sikhs, Hindus, and Muslims. There were young and old and everyone in between. There were Democrats and Republicans and independents. There were urbanites and suburbanites. And their friends was worship. There was worship. It was joy-filled, alleluia singing, hand-clapping worship. It was inspiring because it was defiant in the face of these gray, uninspiring visions that we see all around us. 
It was defiant to those visions that the world would want us to put on and to see. With so many visions in front of us that are gray, this vision of Isaiah, this vision of Jesus, this vision of the kingdom of God, friends, it's worth living for. And it is worth dying for. And so when you lead like Jesus, you give your life for this vision. It's the, the, the glasses that you wear to see the world above any other glasses that the world wants to put on your face. And friends, we see this vision not just on Sunday mornings in sanctuaries, but we see them Monday through Saturday in the public square. Friends, the kingdom of God is among us. May we conceptualize and intuit it and enter and receive it with our whole selves right now and in the days ahead. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.